Welcome aboard to the uh, Counter Vortex interview with Ilshat Kokbar, who is um, former president of the Uyghur American Association, and you currently also hold the title of the World Uyghur Congress, I understand. Yes, correct, sir. What, what, what title is that? Uh, Chinese Affairs Department uh, Director. Chinese Affairs Department. Yes. I would, I would imagine that that um, accounts for a lot of what the, the World Uyghur Congress does, given that there's uh, the, the very grim situation which the, the Uyghurs are facing in uh, the People's Republic of China now. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the, our issue is with uh, the Chinese government, and we need also to reach out to the Chinese people, let them understand we are not against them. We are against the oppressive government. And uh, it is a big task for us to let the Chinese people know the real uh, true story, not the twisted one from the Chinese propaganda department. And so this is a very heavy task and we are trying our best uh, using all kinds of media uh, and uh, specifically I write a lot. I have my own blog and uh, I recently published another three book in Taiwan. Uh, the first one is last month is already on the store, bookstore in Taiwan. What is it called? Also, yeah, in online. What, what is it called? Uh, what is the title of the book? Hold on one second. Yep. Okay, but uh, I can't read Chinese. It's uh, Uyghur's Eagle, L shot, and the subtitle is under the Chinese colonial rule, the East Turkestan. Mm -hmm. Okay, the uh, Uyghur is eagle, like the bird? Yes. Uh-huh. What's the significance of that? Uh, when I uh, fled China in 2003, uh, it's uh, the day of uh, 17th November, uh, because I have to sneak out, uh, cannot let people know. So uh, I live in another one city. It's called Shikhaz. My parents live in another one city. It's called Kumul. Both in so, Xinjiang. Yes, both in East Turkestan. Yeah. Uh, some call it Xinjiang. Right. And I called uh, my father one day at once, and I told him, uh, tomorrow I will be at home. I have some important things to tell you. And then I went home. I told them tonight I will leave. I need leave immediately and I can't stay. So sorry. And uh, this is a long journey. I don't know when I will come back. So my father was crying. My mother was crying. And uh, when I went to train station to board. Uh, my parent was with me and uh, final, my mother hugged me and he told me, Elshad, in my mind, you are eagle. You should fly high and ah. far. Ah, very good. Mm -hmm. uh, but in here, you couldn't do that. You couldn't fly even. And I don't want you to leave me, but I have to say goodbye. And I wish God bless you and you can fly high, fly far. Mm -hmm. So that's why it come from. Okay, and you flew to America ultimately. You're currently living in Virginia. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, Manassas, Virginia. Close to Washington, D.C., around 30 miles. Right. And uh, what were the circumstances under which you had to leave China in 2003? What happened? Uh, I was uh, a active uh, Uyghur human rights activist. Not like in uh, here, we can go to the street, but I'm constantly uh, protesting the Chinese policy, specifically at the time they suddenly in 2001 uh, come a announcement from the government stopped in the university level, all Uyghur language teaching. And so starting that 2001, a lot of Uyghur language uh, teacher, especially uh, Uyghur literature, Uyghur history, some others, politics, and uh, most of this teacher, they cannot handle Chinese language very well, uh, specifically in technological perspective. And they were removed from the teaching position. And in China, teaching position is a different thing. Administration is different thing. They have the hierarchy. So the, immediately the Uyghur teacher was kicked out. And a lot of them uh, given a little bit money and tell them you can go away uh, wherever you want to go. And after reach your uh, retirement age, you come back, possibly you can get some uh, retirement uh, salary. And uh, a lot of them was uh, like demoted. Some went to the look uh, after the student uh, domes dormitory and some was doing a cleaning job. You know, in China, it's the hierarchy is very, very clear. Uh, the clearing job is in China regarded as the low level people. So it's uh, hurting the Uyghurs. And so I did uh, write some petition for, I am not uh, impacted actually, because I speak Chinese well, I was educated in Chinese. So I was continue teaching in Chinese language, Uyghur, the Chinese uh, language. Okay. To you, the... you were a teacher at this time. Yes, I was a, a teacher in a college, uh, teacher training college. I was teaching the future teacher. Uh -huh. So right, right. yeah, I spoke, uh, I spoke fluent uh, Chinese and I teach Chinese students the chemical engineering related subject and teach Uyghur, Kazakh, other minority uh, students the Chinese language. Okay, and this was where, in, in what city? Uh, it's uh, the Bingtuan, I call it Bingtuan's capital city in Eastern So uh, because I wrote this partition letter- Urumqi? Uh, huh. It's Bing Tan's number one city. I thought that was Urumqi. No, Shihaz. Uh, huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know Bing Tan, right? The Xinjiang uh, Agricultural Industrial uh, Corps. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, the city is the uh, capital of the Bing Tan. Okay, not, uh, not, not the capital of Xinjiang then. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, uh, I got you. All right. I call it Bingtuan's capital. Urimji is Uyghur Autonomous Region's capital. Yes, yes, yes. In, yes. Uh, in Eastern Stan, they have two capitals. 
One is for Uyghur or local. One is for Bingtan Chinese. That's Shekhar. Okay, we should make clear what the Bingtan is. That's kind of a uh, a, a, a paramilitary uh, organization. And uh, they were called uh, agricultural, but they have weapon. Uh, they are uh, paramilitary and they are mostly uh, acting like uh, police, uh, more or like Nazis, uh, they assess, yeah. they focusing on to suppress any protests, especially for the minor, uh, Uyghur, Kazakh or others. Right, but they, uh, they also have uh, economic interests. They oh, yes, they monopolize all, yeah, they monopolize yeah. whole Uyghur autonomous regions, uh, cotton, mm -hmm. uh, tomato paste and product, mm -hmm. and also the fabric, mm -hmm. uh, mining also now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were, because they are uh, directly belong to the, uh, under the central government, they are not under the uh, autonomous region. Right, 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 right. yes. And this, yeah. this dates back to the Mao era, I assume. Yes, right? yes, yes. yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, back to the question. Right. And because I wrote that petition letter in Chinese for other teachers, and I asked them to go to the Urumqi petition in the regional government, and they did, and... Uh, they asked me to go next time with them. So I went to with them. When we, I came back, uh, then I was in trouble uh, because they know I wrote that uh, petition. And then uh, that was one. Uh, and because of I am constantly uh, protesting, speaking out. So one day, one of my uh, friend, he, we work, he is in police. And he told me, Isyad, you need to leave. If you are not leaving, they will kill you. And the better you leave. And in that between, they also, because of my went to Urimchi petition for other teachers together, they demoted me from the teacher position too. So uh, I was cleaning the students' uh, rooms, toilet and it was like insult. Uh, so I had to uh, prepare for leave. And then I paid uh, at the time uh, more than 10,000 China Yuan uh, for to get a passport uh, paid for my one of my friend. He is in regional uh, police department in Urimchi. He is a Uyghur <clears throat> and uh, Almost like uh, six months later, and he got a passport for me. It's almost like a uh, passport is genuine, but without my last name, it's only Elshad. You know, in uh, Uyghur region, probably you can find a hundred Elshad in one city. Only with the last name, you can differentiate. But uh, because I can't get passport in blacklist, so he had to black out my last name. It makes it XXX3X. X, X, uh -huh. uh, yeah, then uh, I left, uh, came to Malaysia. All right, so uh, how did you actually get out of China? By what route? 
first, after I got passport, I uh, said goodbye to my home and went to Beijing and uh, went to Malaysian uh, embassy because Malaysia is an easy way to get visa for Uyghur uh, at that time. Uh, and I had a Malaysia uh, one English uh, training school's uh, invitation ladder, approval ladder, enrollment for me to go there. So I applied for visa, Malaysian embassy gave me the visa. And then in the custom, the police was asking me, oh, you go there for study? I say, yes. Your age? I say, yeah, I'm still uh, can learn. Why not? And I want to learn English. Why? I say, I expand my knowledge and to find a better job, better opportunity. And uh, he was looking at me, hesitated, but finally gave me approval. So I left. Thanks. All right. So, so you flew from Beijing to Kuala Lumpur? Yes. Uh, flew uh, from Beijing to Kuala Lumpur. And until the uh, airplane left, I was thinking, okay, now I left. Leave. Right. Hey. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course. So that's how I left. Okay. And ultimately, you got asylum in the United States? or uh... Uh, I went to Malaysia, immediately went to the United Nations High Commission for Refugee in Kuala Lumpur. I applied for political asylum. And after a few months, they approved me uh, because I have that proof of uh, a lot of documents at the time. So I submitted them and I was approved uh, as a refugee in Malaysia and uh, from United Nations. And then I waited for another two and a half years to <clears throat> UNHCR resettle me to the third country. I'm the lucky one. I was resettled to United States. Mm -hmm. And so then in 2006, uh, June, uh, June 11, I came to U.S. And my first city was Buffalo, New York. Oh, really? Buffalo? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and after staying three years in Malaysia, tropical season, yes. and come to New, uh, Buffalo was lovely, beautiful. And when I saw first snow, I was so excited. Finally, yeah. I saw snow again. And, and, and you've made a, a successful life for yourself here in the United States. Yes, uh, I stayed in Buffalo for six months, a little, more, a little bit more. Uh, after three months, uh, I was the first one in all our one group of refugee, first one to find a job in a, a company assembly line. I did work uh, in that uh, factory for three more months. And I did my best and the uh, company owner was so much uh, like my job, my work. And uh, when I told him I will leave uh, for Virginia and he told me, anytime you come back, just come back uh, working here if you want. And also that job was, uh, I want to tell my little bit detail about how I find that job. Okay. I was learning English in the International Institute uh, in Buffalo. And uh, in the break, I went outside and I found out one gentleman was unloading 
a full truck of the supply, uh, office supply, something. And then I, I, he was alone and I asked him, can I, do you need help? If you need, I can help. And he said, why not? Come help me if you have time. And then I helped him unloaded the furniture and he looked at me, do you want a job? I said, of course I want a job. And he told me your English is okay. So this is my business card. Monday, come to my office. We will have interview and then you will let me see. Uh -huh. And then Monday I went over there. He was the boss of the uh, factory owner. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked and then that was my first job. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Art, and you were involved in the, uh, the founding of the <coughs> American Association? Uh, no, actually, uh, when I came here, it was already uh, have the, uh, yeah. yeah, it was founded in 2005. Uh, no, no. Uh, 1998, I believe. 98, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I uh, funding person is uh, all of them is here now still, but not me. So I moved from Buffalo to here, Virginia, to join the Weaver uh, community. And uh, uh, when I moved to Virginia first day. Uh, I was attending a demonstration and uh, I was also, uh, when I was in Buffalo, I was coordinating with some Chinese uh, democratic dissidents. So I invited them. So we had a big demonstration at that time. Uh, it was 5th, uh, 5th of February. In Buffalo? So, yeah. Uh -huh. And no, in, uh, I drove to, from Buffalo to Virginia to attend that. Uh, ah, okay. mm -hmm. rally in uh, Washington DC in front of Chinese embassy. Ah, okay, yeah. And I also called the Chinese to come to here. I drove from uh, Buffalo, uh, probably 12 hours. <coughs> and uh, since then I, uh, I didn't go back to Buffalo. I find a home in here. So I find a job after a year's struggle working in different places, uh, frame shop, airport, and then went to a training uh, program for six months while working. Then I find a job in uh, a good company, a consulting company. I'm still working over there. And also I uh, joined my Uyghur community and continued my uh, campaign for Uyghur uh, demo organizing demonstration. And uh, after a year, I was elected vice president of the Uyghur American Association and uh, helping the president, uh, working with the group. And because my Chinese uh, is very good uh, in writing, in speaking, so I started to continue my writing and uh, uh, attending the Chinese dissident communities event, giving speech and uh, attending their meeting uh, activity and also coordinating with Tibetan. And because I strongly believe uh, we need to come together, even if we have not full, uh, fully agree with each other, uh, we have some disagreement, but we need to come together to 
overthrow the communist brutality. And then within the democratic principle, we can have dialogue to solve our problem, uh, but we need first come together. So that's why I tried my best to reach out to Tibetan, Chinese, whatever, they are helping us. And uh, same time, I always say, you are helping us, also helping yourself, because we are all eventually in one concept, we are human being. Unjustice to one person is unjustice to every, each of us. <clears throat> so that's my uh, slogan, and I use it and reach out to everyone, whoever can come together, stand by us, uh, together with us. So uh, yeah, that's uh, my activity started in Virginia, continually. Well, we, we met at a, uh, at a demonstration here in New York in Washington Square Park over the summer which was bringing together uh, the questions of um, the Uyghurs, Tibetans, the Taiwanese, the Hong Kongers, and uh, you know, dissident pro-democracy Chinese from the mainland. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I remember last year, uh, no, this year, early once, uh, I was invited to a Burmese uh, rally in front of the Chinese embassy in Washington, DC. And uh, they invite me to give a speech. And I told them in my speech, it was instant speech and it come to my mind. Decades ago, when I came to the United States, first time in front of the Chinese embassy, we were, we were very few and we were very uh, seen uh, a crowd because we only have Uyghur and some Chinese dissident and other than that, we don't have uh, too much people. And then we started growing. Uh, first the Tibetan, Chinese, Uyghur, and then Mongolian, we joined. We become uh, more diverse, multi-ethnic, and the crowd is growing up. And then Hong Konger joined us, Taiwanese joined us, Burmese joined us now. And recently, the Hazara people joined us from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Because who is on back of, on back of the Taliban? The Chinese communists. Mm -hmm. And then now we have Baluchistan people come to join us from Pakistan's uh, federal, uh, federal administrative land. Yes. And because? Also the Chinese communists on the back of the Pakistani government. So- As well as this, the Burmese regime, which is the connection to Burma. Yes, uh, that's the, exactly. The junta, their backer was the communist China too. So this group becoming bigger and bigger. If decades ago we were few and we were very uh, single uh, ethnic, now we are multi-ethnic, diverse, and also a big crowd now. Each time we have rally, like you and me met in New York in that Washington Square, and it was a big crowd, and it was a diverse group and multi-people, even Korean, uh, Burmese, uh, 
all over. So now we need to come together and we are coming together. And the, that's the way, uh, especially this few years, since the Xi Jinping in 2012, he came to the power, the Chinese government take out their masquerade and they are showing their real face, which is we want to rule the world. And they want to impose their ideology, their role to the world. And uh, I like history. I'm not historic professional historian, uh, amateur historian, uh, historic uh, lower. And uh, I was reading a lot and I read one of the book about Second World War. And uh, it was one uh, paragraph in coding Churchill's uh, letter to our uh, president, uh, Roosevelt. And uh, Churchill at the time wrote a letter to him, uh, Roosevelt and uh, President Roosevelt, and uh, told him, if you are not come to our aid, and if the Nazi defeat British, they will dictate the term, you have to sign it. So now I would like to repeat that. I was so much admiring Churchill's uh, bravery, his smartness, his political view. And if we are not standing together and we, any country, special the free world, if not come to our side and uh, then the Chinese will dictate the term after 10 years or 20 years. We need to deal with them now, early, so we can get rid of this communist cancer. It's like the Nazi. So that's why I do my best, attend all the rally and give speech, uh, tell my story. Okay, well, <clears throat> before we get to the uh... The geopolitical tip. Let's talk more about the uh, the actual situation now in uh, Xinjiang or East Turkestan. Things have deteriorated there very, very dramatically over the past um, three or four years. Yes. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit. Uh, I mean, you had to leave when there was just a kind of a low level of repression, purging teachers and so on. But now it's gotten to the situation of, you know, possibly up to a million people or more detained. So uh, What's your uh, understanding of what the, uh, you know, the current situation is on the ground? Uh, use my uh, personal experience. And uh, like today I had a conversation with my wife and my wife was telling me, you need to take care of your health, Elshad. Uh, we need you in here, you and me, the only one. Uh, if any one of us, something happened, we don't have any relative in here. We don't have brothers, sisters, anyone. And we can't contact them. And my wife has four brothers uh, and have uh, other relatives and uh, uncles, but- Still stays, in Xinjiang. 
yes, in uh, East Turkestan or yeah. region. Uh, she also cut off since 2016 until now. She don't know any one of her relatives, brothers, uh, sisters, and uncles, if they are still alive or what happened to them. And personally me, uh, just now I told you, I left uh, 2003, November, and 2004, November 27, my brother was killed. Uh, I believe that was uh, Chinese police revenge or vendetta to me because I left. Uh, they couldn't find me. Under what and circumstances was he killed? Uh, he was uh, in early morning. Uh, he works in a railway station. And uh, after work in the morning, he was working in the night shift. After work in the morning, he went to a restaurant to get the breakfast. <clears throat> and he was sitting in the restaurant. And I came in around 10 Bingpan Chinese mob. Uh, and this uh, told my brother, get out. We will sit in here. My brother said, so many places. Why you don't find other place to sit? Why you want my seat? And they said, Uyghur, when we tell you, get out, you need to get out. If not, we can kill you. And my brother argued with them, and they started beating him and then stabbed him to death. Oh, in the side. Yeah. Uh, so after one year, I lost my brother, and he was the only one brother I had. Uh, and uh, I remember when I left, when my father was crying, say, uh, you are the eldest. I want you to be my side if I get something. And I was telling him, because in Uyghur culture, I guess a lot of nation uh, culture is saying uh, they are more wanted the son in beside. So my father was at, and uh, I want you being beside me when I'm on my last minute or something. And I told him, oh, you have another one, son. Uh, my brother was here. Uh, he is young. And, uh, and another one, my son, when I left, uh, it was for me is forever a regret. I didn't say goodbye to him because I assumed he is the youngest one in uh, all. Uh, we are four, five siblings. He was the youngest one. So I assumed if after even 20, 30 years, if I have a chance to come back, he should be the one to come to welcome me because he is the youngest one, but I didn't expect he was the first one to leave, uh, unfortunately. Sorry. Yeah, so 2004, he was killed, and uh, 2014, uh, 15th of August, uh, the Chinese secret police burst into my elder sister's house because uh, they detained her since then uh, in unknown location. Uh, because I was very close to my elder sister. She was a single mother with two kids. And uh, because she is a single mother, a nurse, uh, and uh, she's retired very early and she was cancer survivor. 
So I try to support her after I get a little bit better in US. So I sent her money uh, to support her daughter's study in university. And I remember later, uh, before she was get detained, uh, disappeared, I would say disappeared. Uh, one time I sent money and after a few weeks, I say, did you receive it? And she was telling me, uh, brother, better you just don't send, we have enough. Uh, it was very difficult to get the money. And then I sensed something, but I didn't uh, grasp uh, its whole picture. So I was keep calling her and then suddenly in 15th of August, I couldn't get any message from her. And then I reached out to my second sister and she told me, brother, she was taken away. And then I asked my second sister, if we can get any news about where about her. And I remember that message still in my phone. Uh, after half day, my second sister sent me one message say, uh, this, uh, the police told uh, my second sister's husband, let your brother call police to talk uh, or stop his activity in uh, America. And then I tried to get more information, uh, but my second sister st also stopped contacting me, reply. And then my third sister stopped to replying me. So I was totally cut off. Or the, what year was this? Uh, 2014. Uh-huh. <clears throat> okay, so has, has your sister reappeared since then? Have you reestablished contact? Uh, no. Uh, I know she was shortly, when uh, 2016, my father passed away. And in, uh, in 5th of April, when uh, my mother called me, when I pick up phone talking, I heard uh, my sister, uh, elder sister was there. Mm -hmm. So I believe she was in between. Mm -hmm. uh, she was out. Uh, so only by that. Mm -hmm. After my elder sister was disappeared, so I only able to contact my parents. And my father always pick up the phone. <clears throat> not allowing me to speak, just say, son, we are okay. Uh, God bless you. And then goodbye. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, one time he told me, don't call us too much. You just call uh, if you want once a month is enough. So I usually call once a month and just listen to my father, what he say. Then uh, my father passed away uh, 16, uh, 5th of April. Uh, after... 2016. Huh? 2016. Yeah, 2016, uh, April, uh, 5th of April. And then in August, uh, I called my mother again. Uh, in this between, I was keep calling my mother 12, three weeks because she was alone. And uh, in August, uh, it was mid-August, I pick up the phone, and I called my mother and she pick up the phone. And uh, after she pick up phone and she told me, son, listen, don't call us. Uh, and she said, I never called you. We had too much uh, trouble. 
we had too much in here. Uh, all your three sisters, each of them have two kids. They are all, most all of them graduated from university. The early one is graduated already four or five years. They don't have any job because of you. They can't find a job because of you. And your, all your sister is suffering because of you. Your father passed away because of you. And uh, your brother uh, died and your sister was got arrested. This all made, it, made your father's uh, life short. Nice. So uh, we had enough. Uh, God bless you. We love you. Don't call us. So that was the last phone I had with my mother. And then uh, within this few years, I did try my best. I have a lot of uh, Hui Muslim friend, Chinese friend. So I did ask them if anyone can help me to find out if my mother is still alive. And uh, until today, no any news. I don't know if she is still alive mm -hmm. or at home or in jail or in a concentration camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe it was end of last year or early this year, uh, early this year uh, should be. And the New Yorker uh, journals, uh, one of the journalists, uh, he contacted me and said, uh, we want to interview you a little bit about your family and what is your story. I told them. And then uh, after a week or two, he called me again and we become familiar with us, uh, each other. And he called me again and uh, told me the article will be published tomorrow, Elsa. And uh, we don't want you to find your sister's information in that report. I want to tell you, we have a little bit about your two sisters. They are in concentration camp and uh, your elder sister and your second sister with her husband, daughter in the concentration camp and uh, your uh, elder sister mentally broken. Your second sister is passed out a few times in concentration camp and they was dragged out. Uh, anyone else, uh, your elder sister or her husband or her daughter, no one can help, police not allowing and uh, uh, pushing them out. So uh, I want to tell you in advance. So when you are reading tomorrow this news, and you wouldn't uh, feel I didn't tell you. Right, right, and I right, said, right. Yeah, yeah uh, that day I was in office, working in Annapolis uh, office, and I was deep, deeply depressed, and I couldn't continue my work. Uh, I left early, come back home. So imagine. When you heard uh, your sisters, brothers, whatever, your direct relatives in a concentration camp and their family in a concentration camp, but they can't come together to help each other. Even in that worst situation, uh, imagine 
when the daughter, my sister, second sister's daughter, seeing her mother passing away in the ground and the police dragging her out and she can't help. Imagine the husband, my second sister's husband, he is watching his wife passing out, dragged out from the ground and not letting him to help. Imagine my elder sister, she's watching her sister passing out and dragged out by the police, can't help. And I am here as the eldest one reading that story, listening someone telling me that story and I can't help. I can't do anything. This pain, this pain, I don't want anyone else to experience it, but I know no one can feel how painful it is for us, for me. And sometimes I can be depressed. I just won't talk to anyone for a few days because when that picture, when that scenario come to my mind, come to fly in my eyes, I can't sit, I can't do anything. That is the situation for us. And until today, I don't know if my that two sister with their husband, with daughters, if they are still in the concentration camp or they've already been sentenced to send to some jail or sent to a forced labor camp. Okay, and this was all this year. The story in the New Yorker yes. came out in uh, April of 2021. Surviving, uh, yes. the crack, surviving the crackdown in Xinjiang by yes. Rafi Kachadorian. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the police told my sister in that report, also has it, until your brother in America, he dies, then you, you will be here, the meaning. Okay, so what's your uh, understanding now of, um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk from the Chinese authorities that uh, people are being rehabilitated, <laughs> in the camps, they're being released. And uh, of, of course, you know, they're, they're just considering it all to be work training programs and, uh, and you know, counterterrorism, uh, you know, indoctrination. Uh, but what's your understanding now of how many people are still detained? And do you really place much stock in the claims from the Chinese government that most of the detainees have been released at this point? Uh, again, with example, I still, I tried to call my mother, still no one answer. As long as my mother, no one answer, and I can't get any information from them, nothing changed from my point. And if you are looking at, in Kazakhstan, in the uh, Twitter, it has a girl, Kazakh girl, her name is Altunai, and she is looking for her husband. 
in Almaty in Astana in front of Chinese embassy. She is every day posting her husband's picture and asking, where's my husband? So she, for her, nothing changed. And she is not alone in Astana or in, uh, uh, in Almaty's Chinese embassy. All right, so we, we should make clear here that the, uh, the Kazakhs as well as the Uyghurs are being yes. uh, persecuted in, in East Turkestan or Xinjiang. Yes. Yes. And my friend uh, and my colleague, Rushen Abbas, she is still looking for her sister. And Zba Abbas was looking for her mother. Still, in America, we can find 10 to 20 Uyghur, at least in this Virginia region, or 100 Uyghur, they're still looking for their relatives. Some is looking for their parents, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, sons, daughters. So for this Uyghur, for us, nothing changed. If we go over to Istanbul, go over to the Ankara in Turkey, still hundreds more Uyghur holding their dear ones picture in front of the Chinese embassy, they were asking, where is my son, my daughter, my father, my mother, my sister, my brother? So overseas Uyghur, no one can contact their relatives. They're still in disappearance. For example, Yalkun Rozi, he is a very famous Uyghur writer, critic, uh, poet, and he is still missing. His son, his daughter, keep asking. For example, Jauhar Ilham, Ilham Tohti's daughter, she is still looking for his father. For example, Sintash, Bakram Sintash, he is looking for his father. His father was a journalist, editor in a magazine, and still in disappearance. So this name, I can keep going on and on. In America, possibly I can give you a few thousand names, which means nothing changed. Only changed what is the Chinese narrative. From in the beginning, 2007, uh, late 2016, they called it re-education center. And then they changed it in 2018 to a uh, vocational training center. And in 2019, they said this is a boarding school. And in 2020, they changed it to this is de-extremism education. Now they say we are offering them the job. So. The only change is Chinese propaganda department's narrative, mm -hmm. but the reality, nothing changed. Mm -hmm. If what the Chinese said is true, if that is the reality in the ground, let the UN inspector go over there. Unfettered access gives them. Let us to contact our relatives, let the journalist freely go to the historic stand to find out if we are lying, which side is lying.
All right, so where has been the situation with uh, access for UN investigators? Have they been given access to the camps at all? No. Uh, they were uh, having some showcase camp each time when the, uh, when the Chinese government invites some journalists. Of course, this journalist was chosen. And uh, when they invite them, they give them, uh, bring, uh, brought them to a showcase education center. Right. There's a Uyghur was dancing, singing. Yeah, we've yes. seen videos, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know Uyghur is like singing, dancing, but we are not 24 hours singing, dancing. Yes, yes, yes. We have life. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, we have the family. We love our family more than the dance and the song. We want to go home and stay with our kids, not in education center to sing song and dance for others. Well, we, I saw the videos that were taken by the BBC, I believe, in one of these uh, model camps, so to speak. But what about uh, what about United Nations investigators? Have they been given access? No, uh, Chinese government. Uh, I believe the United Nations High, uh, uh, the Human Rights High Commission, uh, keep demanding Chinese government allow them to go uh, into the ground uh, to uh, to do an investigation. But the Chinese government rejected it, and because the what I learned from the news, the uh, uh, human rights commissioner. Uh, uh, I forgot her name, and she was uh, with uh, her team asking to have unfettered access, means no any obstruction to their access. But the Chinese government said, uh, what the Chinese government said, only we allow you to go, then you can go where, and not freely. So no, you're unable. Uh, the UN, I that's, feel that's the, cur the current, that's the current High Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet? Yes, Michelle yeah. Bachelet, she right. is. And she also promised uh, they will uh, publish their finding, uh, but still not come out yet. Uh, I was expecting uh, last or before last month, end of last month, it should be. And uh, with, uh, with their statement in the earlier months, uh, but still not come out. I don't know why. Uh, if it was uh, work delayed or Chinese did something, I don't know. Uh, but we are expecting that uh, finding to be published. Okay, and the findings are based on what? If they weren't actually granted access? Uh, I'm assuming their finding is from their investigation in outside world uh, with a journalist, with a witness, uh, with their uh, cross-checking, with uh, also with the technology. For example, the satellite image uh, also. Uh, I'm yeah. assuming that's the real, their source of our investigation. Okay, so, but it's your assessment that there are still certainly many hundreds of thousands, possibly as many as a million or more who are in detention? Yes, uh, I keep uh, receiving some uh, information and anonymous, some, uh, I lost already three person. They were giving, sneaking out some information. They all suddenly disappeared and one, only one able to give me a warning 
and he was a student in America before, and he went back in 2017. And after went back, he managed to give me, send me some message. And then I remember in uh, 18, mid of 18, possibly September on late August, he sent me one message say, uh, Elshad, uh, if within one week, I don't send any message, which means I get arrested. Mm -hmm. So since then, he's no more. I believe that. So back to my topic, uh, your question. Uh, with what I received, still I'm receiving some. Uh, what I received information, uh, I have uh, some uh, camps uh, address and some uh, for labor camps address. Uh, the camp concentration camp and the jail. So still uh, millions in hold. And uh, also we can see it from the picture sneaked out uh, some videos in uh, some uh, subtle way that we were try to send out a message. You can see the whole village was empty and the Uyghur's housing was demolished. Where is this Uyghur? Where they went? And recently, uh, the UHRP Uyghur Human Rights Project, they uh, published a report. Uh, it's about auctioning the Uyghur businessman's uh, wealth, uh, their property. If you read that report, uh, a lot of the Uyghur uh, businessman wealthy was accused in vague accusation like uh, uh, assisting terrorism, extremism, uh, disrupting the social order. And for that, they were sentenced to 20 years, 25 years, and their all uh, properties, their wealth, all is confiscated and auctioning. Mm -hmm. So which means the whole family in some, uh, I was reading that report, and in some whole family. So still, Uyghurs, millions, more is disappearing, disappeared. And some of them, I believe, in uh, Chinese jail inside China. Some is in uh, forced labor camp. Some still in the concentration camp. And another one new narrative that Chinese, uh, uh, my friend sneaked out, uh, sent to me is they changed it uh, again, the concentration camp's name. Uh, some is called now is uh, Legal Education Center. Mm -hmm. uh, some called, uh, what it called a Wenming uh, Xueshiao in Chinese. In English, should it be uh, like a civilizing center? Mm -hmm. uh, something like that, uh, uh, enlightening center or something like that. So the Chinese keep changing the name, but the structure was there and the people disappeared is still disappeared. So nothing changed. Only the Chinese narrative is keep changing. Okay, well, you, you used the word sentence before. Now these people are actually some, subject to some kind of a judicial process and there was actually a trial 
uh, and they were actually, uh, you know, uh, given a formal charge. And that's distinct from the people who have merely been disappeared, as you say, and merely been detained without uh, any charge. Yes, uh, but this charge, uh, if you read the report, they were all in secret uh, trial. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, secret trial. We don't know. And I can give you one example how this secret trial is going on. In uh, 2011, I went to Turkey. I met a Uyghur lawyer. He is in Urumqi. He is a lawyer. And uh, he wired a middleman asked me to meet him in Istanbul in a secret place. We met there. I still have some, uh, he died. I don't know so for what reason he died, I heard. Uh, he gave me some uh, material and he told me he attended uh, around 100 Uyghurs case trial. And uh, he was called the court called him on the phone. Tomorrow we will have a trial. You come, you're a lawyer for the accused. And then he went to the court next morning and he was giving all the material, asked him to sign it. And then the trial, he told me, the long one is lasted for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Everything was already written Yes. filled out the form, and then just read to the accused, you are sentenced for 25 years, done. Mm -hmm. And the, called the lawyer, no more arguments. You just signed for your, we already uh, written for you the, uh, your statement, just sign it, give it back to us, that's it. This is the so-called trial. Right. And of course, uh, in concentration camp, most of them know even this so-called trial, yes, this right. secret trial. And uh, another one uh, I received information is, on uh, 2019, the Chinese government tried to hide the concentration camp. So after the rebuild in the whole world, it become a big issue, especially when America, when the Europe accused China, and Chinese started to uh, move around the Uyghur people. So they give the concentration camp boss, party boss, authorization. He can fill out the form saying, Elshad, he is resisting the education. Uh, he is not accepting the party, uh, party indoctrination. So he was sentenced for 10 years. He fill out the form then this guy go to the jail. This is a trial. No lawyer, even know the court person, just party boss fill out a court's form and then they are sending the people to the jail. So, so even when there is some kind of a judicial process, it's all very summary and irregular by international standards, yes. <clears throat> Yeah, we can say that, but yeah. for me, it's not a trial. Right. It's just a, a order. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. All right, let's talk a little bit about politics. You use uh, the term East Turkestan for uh, what uh, China and most international maps 
Provinci is the province of Xinjiang. Um, when did uh, this term come into use? When did you begin referring to the region as East Turkestan? You, uh, you are asking me or when did the Uyghur people? Well, both, both. Okay. Uh, I learned East Turkestan when I was a kid because uh, my grand, uh, grandparents, their brothers, uh, was a soldier of Second East Turkestan Republic. And my grandma's uh, younger brother, he was a colonel in the East Turkestan Republic's National Army. And so we have uh, some swinger leftover. And my grandpa was a imam in a mosque. And he has some old book. He was hidden. Uh, and... Uh, after I grow up a little bit and uh, when I can read, uh, he showed me the book. The book was printed in the first page. I still have that book in US. I brought it. Uh, East Turkestan Republic Religion Department in 1945. Wow. Uh, yes. Hmm. So I have the book. Okay, uh, written in the Uyghur language? Yeah, uh, in Uyghur language. With, with, with Persian script? Uh, yes, Persian script, mm -hmm. yeah, or Arabic script, so yeah, Persian yeah. script, yeah. yeah. So, with right, that, so we, we, we should make clear here that, uh, what, from 1944 to yeah, 1948, 44, I believe, uh, there was a, an independent East Turkestan covering much of what is now Xinjiang. Uh, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then, before the 44, in 1933, in Kashgar, we had another one independent yes. government set up. Yeah. Yeah. It called East Turkestan Islamic Republic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, that one was solely from the local people yet uprised. And then they, uh, the Uyghur, Uzbek, and the Kyrgyz were together uh, under the Uyghur's leadership, special uh, Sabit Damullah Haji. He is uh, a funding father for the modern East Turkestan country government. And uh, uh, it was set up in uh, 1933, uh, 11th of November. And it existed uh, merely for three more months. And then the Russian uh, Soviet Red Army in one side uh, and the Hui uh, Militarists in another side. Okay, now we, we should make clear the, the Hui are the, the, the Chinese Muslims. Yes, Chinese Muslim yeah, militarists. Like, like Han Chinese, so to speak, uh, ethnically distinct from the Uyghurs, who are uh, also yes. Muslim. And uh, they are Kim, and also the Guomindang uh, nationalist uh, yeah. military yeah. three side come together to mm -hmm. uh, defeat this. Mm -hmm. So that was the starting beginning in the modern day. But uh, East Turkestan, this term was uh, used uh, in uh, East Turkestan. This term was started in 17th century. Uh, <clears throat> and before the whole uh, Soviet Five Republic, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, plus our uh, region was together, it was called the Turkestan. Yeah. 
Yes. Kurdistan yes. means Turkish land. Right, land of the Turkish people. Yeah. Uh, land the of Turkish, Turkish people. people. Yeah. yeah. Stan yeah. is meaning a state or a land, something. Right. Some yes. people say English state was come from that stan. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not expert on that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, after the Russian. Tsar uh, Empire occupied the uh, west part, and the Chinese Manqing uh, Empire occupied the east part. The Turkestan was split, become West Turkestan and East Turkestan. Mm -hmm. uh, then, if we recall the history of modern day, uh, in 1917, after the Soviet Union set up, until uh, 1925, in the west side was called West Turkestan Soviet Republic until 25. No Kazakhstan, no Kyrgyzstan, no Uzbekistan, no Tajikistan, no Turkmenistan. It was called West Turkestan Soviet Republic. And then starting 25, Stalin find out that is a danger for Soviet in the future, it's a big, so they use the divide and the conquer. Uh, they use the language difference. Uh, so created five stan and we were left as Eastern stan. Mm -hmm. So that's how this uh, term come from. It was a, historically say it was a geol geo name, geographic name, yes. but with our freedom movement, Chinese put a lot of political content in it. So now it become a distinction with Uyghur's identity together with the Kazakh all together. As long as you are saying Eastern you means you are not recognizing Chinese rule Right, right, of course. Yeah, yeah right. so it's become a symbol of our movement. And actually, it was, uh, when it started, it was a, ge a geography name. And now become more politicized right. and become part of our identity. Okay, so when, when, when was that change? When did it become more of a... Uh an actual political aspiration and not merely a geographic. Uh, especially since the Chinese communists took over. Uh, because in the Guomindang, uh, the nationalist government in China, uh, they were, uh, for example, have a Chinese historian. His name is Wai Qin. He speaks English very well. He wrote a English book about our uh, the first uprising in 1930s. Uh, so in that book, he called, uh, the title was Turkestan Turmoil, which means Turkestan. Uh, at that time, some call it Chinese Turkestan, some call it East Turkestan. <clears throat> or this book was written when? Uh, it was written in 1940 around. I have that wow, book. that early. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In, in which language? In English. In English. Published where? Uh, I believe it was published in the uh, UK. Uh-huh. Yeah. I can check it later and yeah, send yeah, to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah I have the book. Uh, 
So at uh, until the communists took over, it was uh, in Chinese. Some uh, historian uh, also accepting that as a geographic name. Uh, they call it Chinese Turkestan or East Turkestan, and uh, of course they are officially still calling it Xinjiang. But since the Chinese communists took over, especially after the 1955 uh, setup the Uyghur Autonomous Region. Gradually, this uh, East Turkestan become a taboo for the Chinese Communist government. Anyone, if you say East Turkestan, which means you are promoting independence, you are uh, emphasizing your identity. So gradually, especially before, until the uh, 19, last decade, it's still in some uh, books, you still can see it. You still can, uh, especially in the scholarly discussion, you still have the historic stand. And I remember in 1990 uh, around, uh, in uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region have a journal, monthly journal, it's called, uh, uh, in Chinese, Yuan Yu Fan Yi, language and translation. And in that, I have read one Chinese scholar's uh, article, say, we shouldn't be so much uh, agitated by this East Turkestan name. It's only a geographic uh, uh, nonce and it's for name, uh, as long as they are not too much emphasizing its independence content. So we should allow the Uyghur people uh, freely to express this East Turkestan uh, name. Uh, so, I mean, still, uh, it was a little bit have room. You can have scholarly, can discuss it. But after the 90, uh, then the rope was tightened. And anyone, if you say a strict stand, you will face the jail term. Mm -hmm. And now it's become a death road for you. Anyone, if you say East Turkestan in uh, East Turkestan, you really go to the jail and then you will never come out. So uh, that's... Well, I, I should say that um, the listeners won't be able to see this because it's just audio, but I can uh, see on the video that you are um, sitting in front of the, the flag of East Turkestan, yes. which is a, uh, a white crescent and star on a blue field. Yes. So you're actually um, aspiring to independence for for East Turkestan, or uh, do you still think that there are, is a potentiality, perhaps, if there's some kind of democratic change in China, for remaining with some kind of uh, regional autonomy within China? How how do you view the whole question? Uh, if you ask me decades ago, possibly I will hesitate a little bit and uh, looking for the Chinese. Uh, democracy movement, uh, having some hope for that. But now uh, I have no hesitation. Uh, I will say independence. After our nation suffered this genocide, after we lost so much, and then if we keep hope on the Chinese democracy, uh, I don't think that's a wise uh, answer 
especially when we are facing this genocide. Just now I was talking to you uh, about my feeling, my pain. And I saw so many, uh, I was admired a few years back, the Chinese dissidents, they are uh, leaders. Uh, some of them, I was looking at them as uh, my hero. And when they deny this genocide, and when they say, ah, you shouldn't ask for independence, uh, after democracy, you will have uh, our uh, promise. Uh, you will be free, but you need to stay with us. I feel I can't trust them because first of all, whether I have that ability to independent, you have to acknowledge I have that right. Then we can go together to find a solution with the, within the democratic principle. And if you are keep, even keep denying my pain, denying the genocide, and then you say, after democracy, we will give you freedom, uh, but you need to stay with us. This is order. It's not discussion. It's not a equal dialogue. They are, even though they don't have the power like the communists, they were same as me by Virginia or renting a house, but they still feel they're the owner of the land and try to dictate to me after democracy, you need to stay with us because I will give you the freedom. No. No. Freedom, independence is not bagged from someone. Mm -hmm. I demand it mm -hmm. and I will pay for it. We already paid for it. We paid with our life, with our dear one, with our freedom. And even me, a lot of people thinking I am living a nice life. I have a decent job. I have home, I have everything. Yes, my life is very comfortable now, but am I free? No. When I can't get my relatives any information, when I can't know, I don't know my mother if she is alive, how can I be free? When I heard my sister in concentration camp, how can I enjoy the life? It's impossible. So I wish the people at least to understand me and especially the Chinese dissident. I'm not seeing everyone. I have a lot of friends. They are very nice. They're open-minded and they are telling me, Elshad, Uyghurs have the right to independence, but we need to come together. First, get rid of the communists and then we will find a ground, find a way to solve the problem. I like it, I respect them, but I can't accept some Chinese dissident leaders telling me you can't independent. Right. You need to live together. We need yeah. to keep Chinese unity and we guarantee you. Mao Zedong said that, Jiang Keishi said that. 
And even we had Uyghur autonomous region and Hong Konger, they were guaranteed 50 years, no change. But now what we are seeing is less than 20 years, Hong Konger is on the same, following our footstep, go, footstep and go into the concentration camp. How can I trust anyone? No. So my answer is we need independence. We can live together side by side as a neighbor, equal neighbor. Like US, Canada, like US, Mexico. Yes, we can. Why not? We can't move East Turkestan from the geography to Latin America or Europe. We have to live in that place. And if China is our neighbor, yes, we can live together side by side over there, but with equal right, not I'm part of you. And the history, they always say, Turkestan or Xinjiang is starting from the long, long ago, ancient time is part of China. If with this logic and Mongolia can claim China is part of the Mongolia yes, because yes, Genghis yes. Khan yes. conquered them and ruled them for hundred years. Yes. Mm. Uh, and then if that's the logic, Italy can claim, British can claim, France, yeah, yeah. German, Holy Europe. Yeah. That was a part of the Roman Empire. Yes, yes. And even the, uh, East, uh, uh, North Africa. Right. My, my fear, though, is that uh, I don't see how this can be accomplished short of war. And that could really be, uh, you know, a disaster for the world, you know, if actual, you know, China begins to break down, you know, violently, uh, that could really be a very disastrous situation. And we've already seen, uh, you know, disastrous situations like that, Yugoslavia, Chechnya, et cetera, over the past generation. But uh, if it begins to happen in China, one shudders to think what the consequences could be. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I can't answer or predict that part. I am a common uh, people like you, and uh, even I believe uh, scholars cannot predict what will going on, what will happen. But I'm assuming uh, Yugoslavia is now is good. They are living uh, peacefully. Uh, of course, for the sacrificed for them, it's unfair, but uh, for the next generation, they created a uh, independent, their own land. So for us, we had twice independent, uh, uh, even though it was short-lived and part of the historic stand, but still we had that. And uh, we keep the hope in the future, the Chinese government, the uh, nationalist or communist, they will respect us, they will become a, a better. But after the, uh, even after the Uyghur Autonomous Region, now we end up in concentration camp. I, I, I can't see uh, after the breakup of the China, what's a disaster, must be some uh, catastrophe or disaster, but at least we can guarantee in the future of our 
generation, no more concentration camp, no more fear uh, if we can get that independence. Uh, of course, another one way is we always imagine a lot of uh, something could happen, but sometimes like the Russian uh, Soviet empire, uh, the five republic of Central Asia, no blood. Uh, of course, they had their own civil some unrest. That's their own problem. It's not with the Russian people. They had a very peaceful solution. Even the Kazakhstan, uh, we all know, in Kazakhstan have 40% uh, Russian uh, ethnicity still right. living there. Right. Yeah, they're living very peacefully and they are handling it very well. So the Russia Soviet empires breakdown is another one example. Only the Chechnya had a bloody war. Other than that, most of them didn't have uh, that kind of. So I am more optimistic if we are wise enough, if we learn from uh, the, I mean, don't just look at the outside from America. I always want people special come from communists to learn from the American system from inside, not from the outside. Uh, I, I attended a meeting, I attended a conference. And for example, I felt one thing is uh, always uh, making me a little bit uncomfortable. That is, uh, we are promoting the democracy in China or we are in Turkestan, but a lot of time the people come from other side. When they come together, they always not following the rule. Uh, for example, uh, we had a lot of conference and if we say each of you speak for 15 minutes, they can go on and on 20 minutes. And when you stop them, they will say, I didn't finish. You give me another five minutes or 10 minutes. And you give five minutes, they will extend it to 10 minutes. And uh, I work in a big company in the US. Uh, and we have the conference, we have meeting. If they say five minutes, CEO speak five minutes. We speak five minutes, everyone. We can finish in that five minutes mm -hmm. or 15 minutes. And if you can't finish, you stop there because this is a respect to each of our right. We all have the five minute or 15 minute speech time. If you one person, you are promoting democracy for rule of law and then give you five minutes, you speak half hour, you are ignoring the rule. Well, so, who, who are you referring to? Who, who is engaging in this kind of behavior? Uh, uh, it's, I don't want to name the name, but it's a lot in the this dissident society. It's uh, always happened. So I want uh, us to go deep inside this uh, society. Why I go to the election rally, I go to the election each of the time because I want to learn to watch it from the beginning and how the U.S. handling this stuff. Well, how uh, they... the, the United States is not handling the, uh, its political divisions very well at the moment. I mean, this country is extremely dangerously <laughs> polarized and uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, really, uh, shall we say, very, very heated emotions at play and a lot of very ugly politics emerging in this country right now. We just saw that the system, the democratic foundations of the system literally 
beginning to teeter on, uh, you know, uh, particularly around what happened on January 6th of this year. So I'm not sure that the United States really provides a, um, you know, uh, could you really claim to be providing, uh, you know, the, the shining example as the leader of the free world that it used to claim to be. I agree. Uh, that's why I find that democracy is also very uh, fragile. We needed to take care of it. And uh, actually, I was uh, just two days ago, I was referring to some, uh, some Chinese dissident was writing, uh, specifically, they were saying about Virginia's election, say, if the GOP lost, it must be irregular irregularity in the election. So I wrote a short answer. So which means if you win, is it's fair election. If you lose, it's unfair election. Exactly. And the communists always say when they had the development in economic, they say the party leadership did a great job. Uh, only the party leader, dear leader can lead us to success. And when they had a disaster, like uh, the famine in 1959, 60, 63, millions of people died. They said that's because of imperialism. Right, exactly. Very astute analogy. Yes. Yeah, it's same mentality, same analog. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> success is from you. If you are failed, it's others. Uh, this is not a democracy. We need a compromise. We need to acknowledge, even if we lost, this is democracy's foundation. We have to have the God to say, I lost. Yes, precisely. And I feel that, you know, the, uh, the country is sort of losing sight of that, particularly, you know, the, uh, the Republican Party is kind of losing sight of that. I feel that we're, we're really entering probably the most dangerous period in this country's history since, uh, you know, um, 1861. Yeah. I, uh, I like re read a lot about the Roman Empire. And uh, recently I was reading again about another one book about the from Roman Republic to Empire from the Caesar study. So... Uh, sometimes I was thinking, are we in that junction? <laughs> yes, precisely. And meanwhile, you know, while the, the United States is kind of, um, uh, you know, losing its um, moral focus, shall we say, and doesn't speak with the same authority on the world stage that it used to, China is uh, clearly a, a rising power, certainly regionally. Now, you, you said earlier that China seeks to rule the world. Uh, I think that's a bit overstated. I think China is right now aspiring to be a uh, the regional hegemon within the Asia Pacific sphere. I'm not sure that it actually uh, wants to dethrone the United States as the uh, as the top power. I don't think it sees that as something it's going to be capable of doing for another generation yet, at least. Uh, yes, uh, ascend to the world power number one power. China still have. Uh far away to come, uh, but for now, they try to, and I was listening to another one uh, uh, lecture in uh, yesterday, 
given by the uh, what is his last name uh, Graham, uh, the writer of the Thucydides uh, trap. And oh, he the Thucydides trap. Yes, uh, yes, Thucydides yes. trap. Yes. And he was uh, he also was talking about that point. But uh, in that his lecture, he also uh, said the Chinese leadership was openly saying they want uh, America out from Asia. Uh, they, will, uh, they want to dominate Asia. Asia should be the China's uh, sphere of influence. And so uh, the Taiwan is a pivot for China, also for US. If, yes, if, clearly, if, of course. Yeah. We should make clear the Thucydides trap written by Graham Allison. Uh, yes. Uh, that's um, a reference to uh, Thucydides was the uh, the Greek historian of the Peloponnesian War, which he is arguing was sort of inevitable because uh, Athens was declining as, uh, you know, the top power among the Greek city-states and Sparta was rising. And this inevitably brought them into conflict. And he's sort of drawing an analogy between what's happening on the global stage now between the United States and China, which is a very pessimistic analysis, certainly. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, if China gets Taiwan and we have to come back to America, I mean, this continent, and from the land, China will extend their influence from Central Asia to Euro Asia, and the Russian now cannot stop China. If China gets Taiwan, it will hold hold the uh, region. And as soon as China gets Taiwan, my prediction in, in the future is, of course, it might be wrong. Uh, the Japan and India will soften their rhetoric and possibly give away to the China and we'll become more cooperative, uh, like uh, in the Second World War, uh, some other European country after the Hitler gets the Poland and the Czech, uh, other country. Yes, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the scenario history always repeats. So that I like uh, when I give speech, I like to use my historical a little bit background, uh, no, not background knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, from my reading. So yeah, that uh, possibly we all repeat. And then if gets Taiwan and uh, they can claim Shinkaku Island in the Japan. And uh, as long as America, as soon as America back to the continent left from Asia, the Japan cannot resist China's big, the power. Yes. And then India will give up. Then they will have the whole uh, Asia. And then from the uh, continent, they can go Central Asia to Euro-Asia and to the Euro. US will be left over in this, only this continent. And if you want to deal with the international uh, order or international business, you have to listen to the Chinese. That's their ruling. Now we know uh, it's fair, I like it. The current international order 
is uh, leaded by U.S. after Second World War. We did uh, make up most of the rule. Now they try to challenge it and uh, they try to dictate it. The Chinese are not hiding it. And uh, uh, in another one lecture, I was listening. China has already become the peacekeeping number one donate, uh, donate, uh, do uh, donation country for the peacekeeping and they in were- In terms of troops, for providing troops for yeah, the United Nations- providing troops. Yeah, yeah. And they also uh, promised to get a, uh, the uh, military for the uh, speed uh, uh, reaction- hypersonic missiles? Uh, yeah, also that one. Yeah. So yeah, the China is already positioning themselves in the international world uh, just uh, sometimes next to the U.S., but sometimes equal with U.S., so it is there. Well, in terms of its global military reach, it isn't anywhere near equal to the U.S. Uh, that's true, yeah. Uh, yeah, but they are quickly catching up. Yes. Uh, they have uh, overseas uh, base now, uh, and a lot of the uh, the facility in the overseas, for example, in uh, Bangladesh, in Pakistan, in the Africa, they say it's for civil using for the expanding that, but that was designed to uh, for the military use too. Yes, yes, yes. And it, it, it's not from my word. I was reading in the news and looking at the Chinese scholars, their report, their lecture. They did a grand investigation, special find out. The one is in Bangladesh, one is in the Gwadar, in Pakistan. They were all for the military navy use. Right. So they are expanding. Oh, yes, well, it, clearly expanding, yes. Yeah, and very rapidly. The other thing I kind of take issue with is uh, the notion that China is communist. I mean, China rules in the name of a communist party, but, uh, and, uh, and certainly under Xi Jinping, it's starting to adapt more and more of the, uh, of the outward rhetoric of the Mao era. But I think fundamentally, it's, uh, its economy is completely capitalist at this point. Uh, and in fact, uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, the, the U.S. And, and China, you know, kind of interpenetrate each other in terms of uh, investment with the U.S. being a big market for a lot of Chinese produced products and China being still even now being a source for a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, industrial production that the U.S. is investing in. And even, you know, there have been uh, uh, claims that the, that the U.S., apparel manufacturers and so on have been actually availing themselves of Uyghur slave labor or forced labor uh, in, uh, you know, factories and using cotton, which is grown with forced labor and so on. So there's, there's definitely, there's still, even now with the uh, inter-imperial rivalry, there's still a great deal of economic interpenetration between the U.S. and China, which was certainly not the case in the old Cold War with the Soviet Union. So I'm, I'm not sure that China really continues to be communist. I think it's more of a, um, of a, you know, two capitalist rival powers. 
Uh, I disagree a little bit with uh, this. Uh, a lot of time, uh, especially in the outside West uh, world, uh, always thinking uh, the Chinese communist is different from the Russian communist. Uh, I guess this wasn't a new, I found out. Recently, I was reading another one book uh, about the uh, 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 Barbara Tuckerman's uh, another one book about the China issue. Which and, one? Uh, uh, practicing history. Selected essays, practicing history. Ah, okay. And in this, uh, also she was, uh, she was talking uh, Mao and uh, Joe in 1945. Joe and Lai. Joe and Lai, yeah. yeah. Uh, tried yeah. to come to US, Washington, DC to meet with President Roosevelt and to explain their position. And in that we can say, and uh, everyone was thinking, most of the Americans thinking the communist China, Chinese communist is different with Russian. They are more farmers, uh, revolutionary, something like that. Uh, but recently I was listening another one lecture from the professor Stephen Kotkin. Uh, he wrote about the trilogy about the Stalin. And in one lecture, someone asked him, uh, you studied Stalin for whole life. What is your finding uh, in one word if say Stalin? And his answer is, He's a communist. He's a communist. And uh, he gave explanation. A lot of people thinking Stalin possibly in office is a star communist. Uh, in the public, he is a communist. Back to home, in private life, possibly he is a human being, not uh, a communist like us. But uh, he found out he is a communist. So. Uh, back to the China, Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong, I believe they are communists, uh, even though possibly they are the Chinese version of communists, but still they are communists. And that's why they are still having the communist uh, ideology and still having the communist Marx, Engels, Stalin's photo in their office and they're still following the rule. And uh, like a lot of other ideology, uh, ism, Marxism is, everyone's interpretation is different. And we know Lenin's interpretation is different with the orthodox Marxism. And the Stalin's interpretation is different from Lenin. And Mao Zedong's one, possibly different with Lenin, Stalin. Yes. And so, but they are communists. Uh, the economic system, yes, it did change a little bit, uh, become capitalist, but still government owned. It's not full capitalist. Uh, it's not uh, private or 
oligarchy is something, but still the government's own. So well, there is a very significant private sector in China today. It is. Uh, they, but they, they, they are squeezing out the uh, private sector now. Yes, Xi Jinping. Somewhat, yes. Yeah, Xi Jinping is. I I term it. He is a fundamentalism of the Marxism. Uh, like some people call fundamentalism in Islam and others. And he is a fundamentalism of the Marxism. So he is squeezing out the private sector now, uh, become more public. Uh, so in this term, yes, we are uh, interconnected with uh, America, uh, uh, with uh, China in economic. And uh, now we are having a lot of problems. For example, in the summer, my AC was broken and uh, I tried to replace it and then find out supply shortage. <laughs> I have to, in the hot summer, suffer for one month to wait for the supply come. Uh, and the installer told me because it's cheap. So everyone uh, having this uh, problem, but it doesn't mean we need to support the, a brutal uh, dictatorship and uh, we need to work that out. I know it's uh, some of our company is still benefiting from the Uyghur uh, forced labor. And just uh, two weeks ago, uh, the media reported, uh, I believe it's CNN or BBC reported one of the American company, Universal Electric, they were using Uyghur forced labor. They know it. And they know that Uyghur was uh, monitored by the police and they were, uh, even in the workplace, uh, also have police. So they know it is a forced labor and they are using it. And uh, uh, like Google, uh, they helped the Chinese government, uh, high-tech company to build up their surveillance system and some other country uh, uh, companies. And now we are close to the Beijing Olympic in a few months. And uh, we still, we try to relocate, calling for relocate uh, by court. But until now, the International Olympic Committee saying they are not politic, they're just solely for the sport, but uh, it is, uh, for me, I'm an American. I love this country. I'm proud of this country, proud of this uh, Americanness. And when my fellow American athletes went over there, I go over there and they attended the Olympic in Beijing. And uh, uh, imagine they got a gold uh, award. <clears throat> then they're standing over there. Do I want to applaud them? Yes, but I know over there also my sister was in concentration camp. My brother was killed. It's very difficult and it's very emotional for me and I don't want to watch that and I will miss that chance to proud for my fellow American. And yeah, that's why 
I'm also joining that relocation of boycott. Uh, but people, a lot of uh, thinking it's not politic. And but it's for us, it is politic. It's not because we want it politic, because of the Chinese government put it in the politic. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, we want our government to do more uh, as a human being. Uh, we want to live a family life. We want to connect with our dear one uh, so we can have their information. Um, Tomorrow is Saturday. I want Saturday morning get up, call my mom, call my sister, tell them my happiness, uh, vent my frustration, but we don't have that. It's become a luxury for us and it's become a dream for us now. Uh, we can't have it even if it's luxury. And some people I remember a few years back when I say I can't uh, contact with my mom, oh, you can use Skype. <laughs> I, I told them, yes, I know I, I have Skype, but if government allows, why? So now uh, we are in better position. We don't need to explain uh, why we can't connect with our families. Right, of course. Yeah, but still, uh, yeah, we need to do more work, to call the world and uh, wake up the world uh, to ask the Chinese government, demand the Chinese government first, be a human being, uh, respect the human being and uh, stop the genocide. Yeah. Okay, well, we should uh, perhaps wrap it up by uh, speaking about what concrete actions that you're, you're calling for now. You're, when are the, uh, the, the Beijing Olympics scheduled? Uh, I believe it was uh, February, uh, sometimes. I remember that, February, yeah. So February of 2022? I guess so, yeah. All right, so you're, you're calling for a, uh, for it, yeah, February of 2022, Winter Olympics, Beijing, yeah. So you're yeah. calling for it to be relocated or in failing to get that, you're calling for a boycott. Uh, relocate or boycott, both mm. of it. Uh, I mean, if we relocate and then we don't need a boycott. Right. If it cannot relocate, uh, if International Olympic Committee uh, persisting in their claim, uh, because again, back to the history, where it Olympic come from? A scene. Where the democracy come from? A scene. Athena. Athena, yeah. Athens, Athens. Athens, yeah, Athens, Athena. Right. Yeah, it's come from the same place. Why it come from same place? Because it promotes equality, respect, exchange of the culture. That's the original mission of the Olympic. So now, when a country hosting this Olympic, it came from the same the democracy ideas practiced first place. And then this country is holding million people in the concentration camp, cracking down on the religion. It doesn't matter Falun Gong, Christian or Islam, 
and uh, sentencing lawyer into the jail, then you are allowing them to host Olympic. And it is repeating the 1936, we had another Olympic in Nazi Germany and Hitler used that platform to show to the world Nazism, how great it was. And we know how great it was. They did the Holocaust. They killed 6 million Jewish people. We know the Auschwitz, Dachau, and we saw that after the war. Before that, everyone was amazed by the Nazis' grand opening of the Olympic. Now we are already know in the concentration camp one more than one million Uyghur, possibly three million or more in concentration camp and allowing it to be hosted in Beijing is giving them a green light or default, let them go. This is unacceptable for human beings. So, okay, so people can find out more about this campaign through the uh, websites of the Uyghur American Association and the World Uyghur Congress. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for the concrete uh, action, uh, we will have more rally and also some other uh, activity, uh, conference, demonstration, and also lobby in the Congress. Uh, we will do more. And for everyone who wants to help us, call the congressman, call your representative, call the Senate and ask them to pass a resolution. And in Congress, also in US Congress, have uh, some congressman and the senator already proposed to boycott, uh, diplomatically boycott the Olympic. So join them, give them support. Uh, this is what we can do in here. Right. I remember when the uh, the last time the Olympics were in Beijing, what uh, going back uh, to nineteen to uh, maybe ten years ago. Two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah, it was immediately after the repression that same year in Tibet, and yeah. it was a big move to boycott then. And uh, here we are, uh, twelve years later, thirteen years later. Again. And uh, the situation seems to have only gotten worse this time in um, Xinjiang or East Turkestan. Yeah. And in 2008, I was also in that uh, demonstration. We were calling for boycott, but uh, international world, we, we couldn't get to today's uh, so far. And no one at that time, I would say no, any, uh, most of the politicians never listened to us in 2008. Uh, and they were giving a lot excuse, say if the China hosts this Olympic, they will become more tolerant and become more open. So give them a chance. Yes, uh, International Olympic Committee gives them a chance. And now after 12 years, it's become worse, the situation. Yeah. And yeah. they didn't open up. They become more closed. 
and they didn't become more tolerant, they become more hatred inside, and uh, Chinese extreme nationalism is high. So we can't repeat again the same mistake. Uh, we study history to learn from history. If we ignore the lesson and we don't need to study history. Indeed. Ilshak Kakbor, thank you so much for joining us. This so been, much, Bill. Uh, my pleasure talking to you. Really fascinating and really an honor. So we'll uh, definitely be uh, staying uh, on top of this struggle. Maybe we can, uh, a few months down the line, we can have you back for, uh, for an update on how the, the boycott campaign is going. And we'll continue to uh, follow the Uyghur situation here on the Counter Vortex. Thank you, definitely. I okay. will looking for that. All right. Thank you. Once again, thank you, Ilshad. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. Okay. Good night. Good night.